the book of 2 Samuel this morning. 2 Samuel. And let me pull this down here a little bit. Sorry, Brian, I know I messed with your recording level. Sorry. Well, I do like to remind you that, you know, one of the things that has kind of happened through all this COVID stuff is the fact that we've added more ways that you can share the messages and that you can go back and get them. So not only do we have a lovely crowd here this morning, but we also have folks on YouTube watching. We're streaming live. That's something we hadn't done in the past. But with COVID, we're kind of, you know, you got to, well, you got to use the tools that God's given you and the time that he's given you to use them in. That's just the way it works, right? And so I was slow as much as I love media, right? Technical media stuff. As much as I love, you know, messing with all the cameras and all that good craziness, uh, as much as I love that, I'd always been very um, reluctant to stream live. Uh, my whole thing is if I make it easy enough for you to sit home, you'll do so. And that's, well, that was bad judgment on my part. Uh, because here we are streaming live and you're still here, right? Uh, so uh, I was just one of my pet peeve things. And it just goes to show you how wrong we can be sometimes. But uh, so we record the services. Not only can you go back to YouTube, watch the whole service in its entirety. Brian also posts not only the message in an MP3 file, but he actually also uploads the... Um, uh, the, uh, Brian, help me, outline, sorry, Whew. I'm out of practice, Kevin, I'm out of practice, and uh, he uploads the outline as well, so if you want to go back and grab a certain point, or you kind of want to know where that scripture reference is from, and you don't remember it, then you can go back, and he actually has a PDF of the actual outlines, now, you get to compare my outlines to Brother Kevin's, and you can see which one does the better outline, but that's beside the point. Uh, Brother Kevin and Brother Dave both tried to really, tried to one-up me over this last month. They brought in all kind of props and all this stuff, and I'm like, dang on. They're just trying to make an old guy look bad, right? But that's all right, so we're still going still to give you Jesus this morning. Uh, I'm glad to be back in the pulpit. Uh, it's been a long month. Um, if, I keep, if I keep moving funny, I apologize. So uh, several people already asked me this morning, Did you supposed to take that neck brace off? No, I was not, okay? So, all right, I didn't. Call my doctor and tell him. I couldn't preach with that goofy thing on because it reminds me of one of them cones that they put on a dog's head to keep him from licking his backside, right? And so it's just, it, it, trust me, you can't sing, you can't talk with the things on. So I, after the service, I promise I'll be back upstairs. I'll put it back on. But if I move a little funny, I felt like a bobblehead this morning. My neck's had a brace on it so long that, that I think the muscles were like, I forgot how fat his head was. And now my muscles are like, seriously? Seriously, you're going to go from wearing a brace 24-7 to just taking it off and make us hold your head up for the next two hours? Yeah. Right, so my muscles aren't real happy with me, but I move a little funny, I apologize. Um, but I feel like I got a bobblehead this morning. And so over the last four weeks, Brother Kevin and Brother Dave Thomas, who uh, was a guest speaker two weeks ago, uh, did a series on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the book of Jude, right? So the last four books of the Bible before you get to the book of Revelation, right? Uh, and so this morning, um, it's not that they didn't do a great job, they did a phenomenal job, but this morning I want to look at a scripture in the Old Testament because I don't know if you realize this, but in the Old Testament there are a lot of actual physical illustrations 
that, that physically show us a New Testament principle. If you start studying the Bible and you start going to, you know, especially uh, if you ever take a class on how to study the Bible, you'll, you'll realize that in the Old Testament there were a lot of visual, what we call types, or foreshadowing, right? So that we get this visual rep representation, if you will, of what something will be like, right? And so one writer said this, he said that the New Testament is enfolded into the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it unfolds the Old Testament. And so just to kind of give you some examples, uh, Jesus in John chapter 3, I think right around verse 14, he said this, just like in the day of Moses, when, the, when he held up the serpent, so shall I, if I be lifted up, draw all men unto me. If you go back in that story uh, with Israel and Moses, remember that there were serpents that were biting them and killing them. And God told Moses to make this, this bronze pole with a serpent wrapped around it and to hold that up. And if you were bit by one of these poisonous snakes, if you got bit, if you looked up, right, uh, to that which Moses made according to God, if you look up to that, then you would not die. And so that was a physical representation of a New Testament principle that if we lift Jesus Christ high, and see him for who he truly is. We also shall not die. Doesn't mean we won't leave this world, but it means that we won't taste the second death, which is the lake of fire, right? Everlasting hell, right? We might taste death here, but we will stand before God covered by the blood of Christ so that we don't have to die that second death. And I'm gonna tell you, there's been a lot of death lately. So many people that we've lost, I, I, I just can't put in the words still, uh, I'm not going to talk about it because honestly, I'll, then I'll start crying and we won't get nothing done. But Brother Dave, I just, you know, we've lost others. Um, seems like a lot of loss lately. Then I got a call this week, Greg Shiley, and I was so thankful that I had gotten to have a conversation with him a few weeks ago before he had surgery and got to pray with him. I'm so glad that I had that time with him. I'm so glad that God gave me the opportunity and I didn't slack on it. Right? A lot of times God gives us opportunities and we slack on it, right? And so we want to unfold this morning. We want to look at an Old Testament story, a historical narrative. We're, we're going to look at a history lesson this morning that shows what you've been taught by Brother Kevin and Brother Dave over the last four weeks. By the way, another one uh, that you find, I think, in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 12, I think, is... Uh, Jesus said that just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so will he, or he says, so will I, be in, be in basically uh, in what they would consider Hades or whatever. He said, I'll be beneath the earth for three days as well. And so that's Jesus saying, listen, that story of Jonah when he's in the belly of the whale those three days and three nights will be what he will experience in death, but then he will rise, Right? And rise alive and thank God he is alive. Amen. And so we want to look this morning at this type. But uh, this morning that's going to show us and give us a physical understanding of a New Testament principles that we were given over the last four weeks. And so we're going to read from 2 Samuel. I'll tell you what you do. I want you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. I know what you're thinking. I've been standing for it. We changed our, we changed up, by the way. We, we, don't, we don't sit down and take an offering and then stand back up again. Chris makes you stand for all four songs. Whew. 
Slave driver, that guy, makes you stand for all four. How wrong is that? Man, I'm telling you. And now I'm making you stand again. I know what you're thinking. Now I got to stand again. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for the change. We, uh, we made the stage bigger, got the piano up here, and I get to sit down for the first half of the service. I'm happy with that right now, to be quite honest with you. So we want to read from 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 26 through 34. Then we'll have prayer, and then you can be seated, and we'll get started uh, on the, the message this morning. And it says this. It says, when Joab, in verse 26... When Joab came out of David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it, and when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asiel, his brother. Afterwards, when David heard of it, he says, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner and the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and all of his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or, one, or who is leprous or holds a spindle or fall, who falls by the sword or lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Ashel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier, and they buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered, and as one who falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. All right, so let's pray this morning. Father, we love you. And God, we just ask you, Lord, this morning for strength to help us, Lord, as we bring your word this morning. Father, we pray that our hearts, uh, Lord, will be open to receive your word. That, Father, you will open our mind for understanding. And, Lord, that it will not be about us, but will be all about you. We pray this, Lord, this morning. Uh, Lord, in the name of your beautiful son, Jesus. And everyone said, amen. amen. Y'all can be seated. As you know, we have uh, really, really been focused on the truth of the Word and doing things as God has prescribed. Uh, you've heard me say many times, and uh, Brother Dave pointed out when he was preaching a few weeks ago, uh, he had heard something I had said before my, the last Sunday I was preaching before a surgery, and uh, that I had said that, you know, this is what, this is what we're going to focus on. If, you know, if I'm not your guy, if this doesn't, if this isn't enough for you, then, you know, you guys got to do what you got to do. But, and so I'm, I'm so glad he brought that up again. It's not, it's not terrible to say it once, but have it replayed back to you by the mouth of someone else. Makes it sound even worse than what it did the first time, by the way. But what we were really getting at, and I'm just, I love Dave, and I'm glad he said it, but I'm just messing with him. Because he'll probably watch this later, and he'll, he'll tell me about it. I'll probably get a text from him later. Um, but what he was referring to is, look, simply the fact is this. If God's presence isn't enough reason for you to show up here, then you're coming for the wrong reasons. Amen? And if God's word is not the most important part of this service, then we're not doing it right. Amen? Now listen, the world is uh, a lot of churches, and we've seen it over, you know, just time after time. I get emails and texts all the time from different companies that I've bought books from or videos from or whatever that are Christian related, and I get all the time books to how to grow your church. 
to the point that I'm sick of. I see him now, I just unsubscribe anymore. Why is that? Do, you know, why is that, Huff? Are you bitter because you haven't grown your church like other churches? No, that's not it at all. Because the simple fact is, is if, if I'm using anything other than promising you that we preach the word of God here as it is written, as God intended it to be, if I promise you anything else other than that, then I'm not doing it right. Amen? So, but I got this one this week, and I thought, Lord, i got to share this one with the church. Apparently, I'm doing it wrong for millennials. This is, this is a message I got this week. 59% of millennials who grew up in the church have dropped out. Well, we know that to be true. The reason they've dropped out, though, well, there are several things, and I think Buddy Bochum did the best thing when he said, listen, we're asking people why they left. We're asking young people why they left. He says, instead of asking that question, we're asking the wrong question. Ask the ones who stay why they stayed. And the ones who stayed, stayed because they saw the word of God lived in their home. And they saw the relationship their mom and dad had with God. And church was not a place to, uh, to be um, entertained or not just a place that we go and we live by our own principles when we're outside of the building. And so I think Vadi got it right. Yes, I agree with the statistic here. Matter of fact, this is a very conservative one. Some people put it at more than 59%. But they're not asking the right questions. But apparently they've got the, all the answers I need here to get millennials back in the church. 59% of millennials who grew up in the church have dropped out. The good news is... There is a powerful and simple way to make them feel important, valued, pursued, needed, and connected. By the way, it'll cost us about $500 for that program. Did you hear the problem? We've got to make them feel valued and pursued. If Jesus dying on the cross of Calvary is not enough of pursuance for you or anyone else, then you're not going to come to love him anyway. Everybody understand what I mean by that? If Jesus going to the cross is not enough, if that's not pursuing you enough, if that's not pursuing the world enough, Jesus dying on the cross, then listen, then you don't get it, and all you want is your ears tickled anyway. But apparently if we spend $500, all this will go away, I guess. Uh, this is your chance to save hundreds on it, though. I could save, we could, if we buy it now, we'll get a deal. I guess I just don't love the millennials like I should because I ain't spending a dime of the church money on that junk. You know what we do? We teach the Word of God. You know what you need to do? Teach the Word of God in your homes. Live it out in your homes and the places where you work. And then when people see that your life has changed and that you have a purpose and that you have a love that, that, that transcends any problem that you ever have, when they see that, then they'll ask you why. And when they do ask you why, you share Jesus. Amen. That's how we build the church. There's a lot of churches being built up with a lot of people. But listen, there are a lot of empty promises there. Why? Because they're not, Jesus is not Lord of their life. And the Bible is very clear. Jesus said, in that day, there'll be many who say, Lord, didn't we do all this in your name? And he says, I will say, depart from me, you work of iniquity, because I never knew you. The Word of God has got to be of supreme importance. And if the Word of God and being in His presence is not enough reason to come here, then they're probably better off finding a different place anyway. 
But you know what COVID has done? COVID is like, it, it, it stopped all of that in its tracks. All the programs and all the things. And now we're like, everybody's scrambling to figure it out now. We don't have to figure it out. You know what we keep doing? We keep going forward with teaching the word of God and you doing it in your homes. We keep that up, folks. We'll be just fine. Amen. I'm not here to bash anyone. I'm not here bashing other preachers. I'm just telling you that even for a long while, I had, to, I had it wrong. I thought it was all these other great things, and I would get upset because we didn't have the money to do all those things those other churches are doing. And I didn't have the money to be full-time and pay full-time people and all this other stuff. And I realized, you know what, Paul wasn't full-time. And you know, it, By the way, if you're ever a pastor and you go to one of these pastor conferences and you're the one who's bivocational, oh, it's like... It's like having a booger on your face that you, everybody else sees and you don't, and you're just walking around. People are like, oh, you see that guy with a booger on his face? Like, stay away. Oh, you're bivocational, so you, you're not a real preacher. You're just one of them other fellows that works a regular job, and they just let you preach because they can't find nobody else. That's what it feels like. It's like walking around with a booger. You ever seen that? By the way, if you love your brother, as you south over here, tell me, stop. I ain't preaching a month. Y'all let me go for a minute now. All right? Y'all let me go for a minute. But I'm just going to give you a public announcement. If you see somebody with a booger on their face, if you love God and love your neighbor as yourself, tell them. Don't be another one of the people like, oh, my gosh. And then tell everybody else, did you see the booger on it right there? It's like, I can't believe you didn't see it. It's like it had its own personality and everything. I believe it. Talk to me. Love your neighbor and just go up and say, hey, pal, I don't know you, but I love you with the love of Christ in my heart. And I got to tell you, you got the biggest booger I've ever seen right on your face. And if I was you, I'd go wipe it off because everybody's talking about you. Right? I see because some of you now are trying to wipe it off your face. Like, oh. This morning... It's been a month, folks. You gotta let, I had to get it out. I want to look at this story this morning, and I'm sure that what we read has probably confused you right now, because you're like, what does this, I don't even understand this story. Well, I get that. So here's the deal. We're going to have to walk through this story. We'll walk through it quickly, but we're going to walk through this story, because I want you to understand what happened. And I want you to understand why David made that one line. Right, That one line when he says this, should Abner die as a fool dies. Now I want that to, that's really going to be our focus. And that's the question that is really going to come up. But we got to understand the story. So let's walk through the story together. First off, I got to give you some important background information. Now, if you have a My Custom Church app, this scripture is in there. Right? So I want to read two passages from, uh, for you to just kind of give you a background. And then we're going to read this story. So in Numbers chapter 35, verses 9 through 15, and again, it's in the custom app if you want it there. Brian will have it on the screen as well. Numbers chapter 35, verses 9 and 15 says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan in the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any persons without intent may flee there. The city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation of, for judgment. 
And the cities that you give shall be six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. So what is he saying? You've heard the term sanctuary cities, right? Well, understand that in this culture, if I were to kill somebody in your family, you have the right to come back and to avenge the blood of your family member. So Brother Chris has got a, a brother named Brian. So just as a for instance, if, if me and Brian got into a fight or for whatever reason, if I was to kill his brother Brian, then Chris would have the right to come back and avenge the blood of Brian uh, and, and take either me or one of my family members out. But specifically, they would go after the one who did the slaying, right? And that was part of their, that was part of their custom, was part of how they operated. But God told them to make these six cities so that whoever did the killing, in other words, if I got in a fight with Chris's brother Brian, right, just because I killed him doesn't mean I'm guilty of murder. What if it was self-defense, right? Uh, or in war or something like that where, you know, this is, killing is what happens, so God said, set up these six cities so that I would be able to go to one of those cities and sit before the elders there and tell them, you know, what happened and they could weigh out the matter. And if I was not guilty of murder, I could stay and live within that city and I would be safe inside that city because inside that city, it was illegal for them to avenge the blood of their family members because these cities were set apart. They were special places that as long as you were inside the gates of that city, they couldn't touch you. So if, if I'm in that sanctuary place and Chris comes and finds me, he can't touch me. But if I go outside the gates of one of those cities, then, I'm, then Chris is free to do what he's got to do. Everybody understand that? Okay, so that's background item number one. Six sanctuary cities. Inside those cities, you were safe and nobody could avenge their family members inside that city. As long as you lived inside that place, you couldn't be harmed. Everybody with me? All right, now let's go to Joshua chapter 20. Joshua chapter 20, verses 7 through 9. And it says this, So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kirapha Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah and beyond the Jordan east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland and from the tribe of Reuben and Ramoth in Gilead, from the tribe of Gad and Golan, Bashan, from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. So everybody see this? So in Numbers, I told you how what God told them to do was set these cities aside. In Joshua, right, because he said when you get on the other side, when you get into Canaan, this is what I want you to do. When we read from Joshua, guess where they're at now? They're in Canaan. You see, understand the connection here? God says, when you get there, this is what I want you to do. In Joshua, they got there. Now they did it. Everybody with me so far? So one of the sanctuary cities is a place that had a crazy name, but it says Hebron. Right? So the Hebron is like the short name. Right? So those are two background things. They set up sanctuary cities, and Hebron is one of them. Now here's what I want you to do. I'm going to read the story now, but I'm going to read from the Message Bible. Has anybody not ever heard of the Message Bible? 
Now, we typically use the ESV here, right? Uh, I use the ESV, sometimes the King James. Um, I'm not against the King James, but I, I believe that the modern translations God gave them to us because both the King James and ESV, NIV are all translations. The Bible was not written in English at all. The Bible was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Okay? So it had to be translated. Now, not all translations are equal. Some translations are, are, are literally translated word for word, which the ESV is. And so the ESV is closest as we can get in our current native tongue to the original. Right? And they're what's called a scholarly translation. Now, there are some paraphrase translations that are what we call less scholarly. To, for some people who don't have any Bible background, who are, have a hard time reading the scholarly version, we have translations that are even easier to read. The New Living Translation, NLT, is one of them. Uh, and the Message Bible uh, is one of those. It's a paraphrase. I don't study using the Message Bible, but I sometimes use it in group reading because it reads easier. And there's nothing that is different in the Message Bible than my ESV or the King James. There's nothing different that's going to change the theological principles. Is everybody with me so far? I know you're thinking, why are you telling us? Because I think it's important you understand these things. We need to be Bible literate, right? And to be Bible literate, we need to understand what translations are and why they are what they are. So this is actually an easy way. So if I like, especially if like a teenager comes to Christ or someone who just doesn't have any Bible background or struggles to understand the Bible, I, I will recommend the Message Bible to folks and say, listen, I'd rather them read the Message Bible than not read at all. I'd rather them read something they can understand. And then if they have questions, write those questions down, and then we can go deeper into a more scholarly translation and, and get a deeper answer. Everybody with me? All right. So I'm going to be reading from the Message Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 2. We, go, we start at verse 12, and it says this. One day Abner, son of Ner, set out from Mahanim with the soldiers of Ish-bosheth, son of Saul, headed for Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeruah, and with David's soldiers also set out. Now, basically, there's Saul's army and David's army. Remember, Saul is king, but God is taking away that from Saul, and David is going to be king. Everybody with me? So we got two separate armies, right? Abner is a leader in Saul's army. Joab is a leader in David's army. All right, let's pick it up from there. They met at the pool of Gibeon, Abner's group on one side, Joab's on the other. Abner challenged Joab, put up your best fighters and let's see them do their stuff. Joab said, good, let them go at it. So they lined up for the fight, 12 Benjamites from the side of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and 12 soldiers from David's side. And the men from each side grabbed their opponents' heads and stabbed them with their daggers and they fell dead, the whole bunch together, so that they called the place Slaughter Park. It's right there at Gibeon. The fighting went from bad to worse throughout the day. Abner and the men of Israel were beaten to a pulp by David's men. The three sons of Zeruah were present, Joab, who was the leader, Abishai, and Asael. Asael is as fast as a wild antelope on the open plain. He chased Abner, staying hard on his heels. Abner turned and said, Is that you, Asael? He said, It surely is. And he said, Abner, let, uh, Abner said, let up on me, pick on someone you have a chance of beating, and be content with those spoils. Right? So, so what happened is they had this battle. They first off picked their, their prize fighters, 
Well, that went bad. They all killed each other. And so now the battle's gotten worse. And basically, Abner is now running for his life in retreat with whoever he's got left because they've been slaughtered. Everybody with me so far? So, Joab's happy, right? Because they're retreating. They're leaving. Asiel wasn't happy with that. I guess he decided he was going to get a little extra glory out of this deal. So now Asiel is trying to chase down Abner, the leader. But Abner knows he's the better fighter. And he says, won't you go try to slay somebody that you know you can beat and take whatever they got and just leave us alone? We're on the retreat. Enough's enough. Now, it says, but Asiel wouldn't let up. Verse 22. Abner tried again, turn back, don't force me to kill you. How would I face your brother Joab? Don't forget that all these guys used to fight together at one time, right? I mean, think about civil war in the United States. We had family fighting against family, did we not? Right? We had brothers fighting against brothers, some brothers on the Confederate side, some brothers you know, on the Union side. And this is the same thing. These guys know each other. But now they've been paired off. This group stayed with Saul. This group was with David. And these guys know each other. And he's like, listen, man, seriously. He knew that he could kill this guy. It says, but he refused to quit. So Abner struck him in the belly with the blunt end of his spear so hard that it came out his back. Asiel fell to the ground and died at once. Everyone who arrived at the spot where Asiel fell and died stood and gaped. And Asiel is dead. But Joab and Abishai kept up the chase after Abner. As the sun began to set, they came to the hill of Ammon that faced Gia on the road to the back country of Gibeon. The Benjamites had taken their stand with Abner there, deployed strategic, strategically on a hill, and Abner called out to Joab, Are we going to keep killing each other till doomsday? Don't you know that nothing but bitterness will come from this? How long before you call off your men from chasing their brothers? As God lives, said Joab, if you hadn't spoke up, we'd have kept the chase up until morning. Then he blew the ram's horn trumpet so that the whole army of Judah stopped in the tracks. They quit chasing Israel and called off the fighting. Abner and his soldiers marched all that night up to Arabah Valley. There they crossed the Jordan, and after a long morning's march, they arrived at Mahanah. After Joab returned from chasing Abner, he took a head count of the army. Nineteen of David's men beside Asiel were missing. David's men had cut down 360 of Abner's men. All Benjamites, all dead. They brought Asiel and buried him in the family tomb in Bethlehem. Joab and his men then marched all night, arriving in Hebron as the dawn broke. So, everybody get the picture so far? Big fight. Joab's guys against Abner's guys. Abner was losing, tries to get out of there. Asiel is going to be, I guess, the big hero. He keeps chasing after Abner. Abner, knowing that he could beat him. Right, Because to be a general there, it wasn't political. To be a general there, you had to be a good fighter. Right, So to be leaders, they had to have first fought really well in battle. Abner knew that he could beat this guy. He says, listen, man, just go back. Pick on somebody that you can beat. Take whatever you get from them and just go. But Ashiel wouldn't have it. So finally it got to the point he caught up with Abner because this guy was a fast runner. Abner had to do what he had to do. It was either kill or be killed. So it was self-defense. He reluctantly killed Esiel. Did everybody see that? Reluctantly. But Joab now wants to avenge his brother. Everybody saw that too, right? At this point, Abner appealed to Joab's common sense. But Joab is not going to stop. Now, 
we're going to go into chapter 3. All right. Chapter 3, we now see, um, well, where did I do with it? Here it is. All right. In chapter 3, we're going to see kind of the rest of the story. So chapter 3, starting at verse 17, it says, Abner got the elders of Israel together and said, Only yesterday it seems you were looking away to make David your king, so do it now. For God has given the go-ahead on David. By my servant David's hand, I will save my people from Israel from oppression of the Philistines and all their enemies. Abner took the Benjamites aside and spoke to them. Then he went to Hebron to have a private talk with David, telling him everything that Israel in general uh, and Benjamin in particular were planning to do. When Abner and the 20 men who were with him, with David in Hebron, David laid out a feast for them. And Abner says, I'm ready. Let me go now. Rally everyone in Israel for my master, the king, that they make a treaty with you, authorizing you to rule over them however you see fit. Abner was then sent off with David's blessing. So now Abner realizes at this point, you know, we've been fighting, but I'm fighting for the wrong side. David's the one who's anointed, not Saul. So he goes to David and says, I'm ready now. You know, I, I, I realize that the best thing we could do is get behind you as our king because you're the one that God has chosen. And all we're going to do is die off and the Philistines are going to destroy us, basically. So let me go and talk to the rest of the, the, the folks and talk them in some sense into them, basically, and get behind you as our king. Everybody see that so far? Let's go, let's go forward. So Abner went off with David's blessing. Verse 22. Soon after that, David's men led by Joab came back from a field assignment. Abner was no longer in Hebron with David, having been dismissed with David's blessing. As Joab and his raiding party arrived, they were told that Abner, the son of Ner, had been there with David and had been sent off with David's blessing. Joab went straight to the king. What is this that you have done? Abner shows up and you let him walk away scot-free? You know Abner, son of Ner, better than that. There was no friendly visit. He was there to spy on you, figure out your comings and goings, and find out what you're up to. Joab left David and went into action. He sent his messengers after Abner. They called up with him at the well of Sirah and brought him back. David knew nothing of this. When Abner got back to Hebron, now listen to this, Joab steered him aside at the gate for a personal word with him. Everybody with me? There he stabbed him in the belly, killed him in cold blood for the murder of his brother Asiel. Later on, when David heard what happened, he said, Before God, I and my kingdom are totally innocent of this murder of Abner, son of Ner. Joab and his entire family will always be under the curse. And of course, that's when he then told everybody to tear their clothes and he lamented. And he said those, those words, Die as a fool dies, Abner. Everybody get the picture here? So Abner realized he was fighting for the wrong side. He told David, let me go back and talk to people into getting behind you because you're the anointed one. David sent him with his blessing. David was a smart guy. He knew what the real deal was. But Joab was still burning hot with vengeance. He wanted to avenge his brother's death, even though his brother deserved it. It was his brother. Joab wasn't thinking about any of that. Joab was not worried about the details. He didn't care that Abner had told his brother more than once, please don't do this, and left him no alternative. Joab couldn't care less about the details of the story. He was just burning hot with anger and wasn't going to stop until Abner died. Everybody with me? 
Well, it sounds a lot like the world today, doesn't it? They won't care about the details. You watch the news today, we can't get details. We don't know what really happened in some of these stories. And then you find out months and months and months later of all these people who either lied or they only showed a snippet of the video. And if you watch the whole thing in its entirety, right? And so the world today hears what it wants to hear and has, my, has its mind set on doing what it wants to do. But here we have Abner, who wasn't guilty of murder. He didn't murder him. Matter of fact, he reluctantly did what he had to do. But the problem is, is that Abner, even though, even though he wasn't wrong uh, in killing uh, Asiel, the problem is, though, is that Abner didn't use his, his understanding of what God had done for him. You remember back when we saw that we read that God said, make a sanctuary city? And then we read the names of those cities. What was one of the cities? Hebron. Where was, was, was Abner at? He was at Hebron and he was getting ready to go in the gate. All Abner had to do was walk through the gate and there be under God's protection and his life would have been spared. But instead, he did what? He allowed Joab to steer him to the side for a personal conversation. Now, I want you to think about this, think about this concept and think about the principle that we see here that's physically before our eyes. Remember that a lot of the Old Testament narratives are really just physical representations of a New Testament theological principle. And we know that we learned in 1 John to do what? To walk in the light as God is the light. Right? If we stay in God's ways and in His commandments, we know that there is safety there. When He says to, for us to live and move and have, our breathe, and have our being in Him, we know that in Christ and in His ways and in His commandments, there is safety for us. And so this is a physical representation that God said, set this sanctuary city and inside here for those uh, who have killed it, that, that weren't murderers, they come in here and they can be safe in here. And outside the gates, they are prey and they are game to the vengeance of whoever wants to do that. But as long as they're inside the place that I have carved out for them, there they will be safe and there I will protect them and take care of them. And so now David is looking over top of Abner saying, Abner, why, you died as a fool. It says your hands were not bound, or you're not fettered, your, your feet were not bound. Nobody made you go and stay outside the gates. You were right there. The gates were there, but you allowed Joab that you know hates you. You allowed him to get your attention and steer you to the side. I ask you this, who's steering you? God and in his word and his commandment that he had laid down through Moses and Joshua was steering Abner into the gates of Hebron where he could be safe. Not only did God promise it in his word, but through the leader that God had anointed over his people, David, he also knew that he was safe. Instead of going into safety, he thought, well, it's not going to hurt. Joab just wants to talk to me. Surely he's not going to kill me out here in front of everybody. He underestimated the hatred that Joab had in his heart for him. Joab did not care that his brother was a fool. Joab didn't care that his brother was absolutely wrong. 
Joab didn't care that it was his brother who pursued Abner and gave him no choice. Joab did not care about that. That had no bearing on it. All Joab knew is that he wanted that person dead. You're the one that's responsible. I don't care about the details. I am declaring you responsible even though God declared him free because he didn't do it wrong. We see that in the scripture. I don't care what God has declared you free of. I'm holding you accountable for this and I'm going to show my hatred toward you. And I'm going to take your life. I'm going to kill you dead. I don't care that my brother was the fool. I'll make one out of you too. So David's standing there over someone who's like, it didn't have to be this way. It, it, didn't, it didn't have to go like this. God made provisions for you. God promised you that you could live it wasn't my fault. You're going to hear some wiener dogs go up here in a minute. He didn't like his part. He probably has followed Joab. He owned Joab's side. Huh? That's Joab Jr. That's what you should have named that dog. I'll get right to the good part. See, see what Joab does? You got to watch him, people, man. Joab just steered us right away from where we was talking about, didn't he? But that's what the world does, right? The world steers you away from the truth, steers you away from the real deal to get our attention and say, hey, well, what about this over here? And they don't get the, the story in full context. Listen, are there bad people out here? Absolutely. There are bad people out here. But this world has a way of declaring who they think is bad and who they think is good. And have you ever noticed that it never really goes in a way that makes sense? Have you ever noticed that the world decides that, you know, this is who I'm going to hate today? And for no reason, or for maybe a partial truth and not knowing the whole deal, makes a decision that will alter people's lives, and they just don't care. Why? Because the world is full of hatred. It'll hate you today, and it'll hate somebody else tomorrow. It's always going to, the world is always going to show that. Why? Because the world is of their father, the devil who already knows he lost the war. He already knows that Jesus has already won. He's standing alive, making intercession for all those who call upon him. God has created for us a safe place in Christ that even though you can take this body, you cannot take this soul because it belongs to the one true and living God. Amen. And that in him I find safety. Inside his word I get sound instruction. Not the kind of instruction that comes from the world that wants to tell me who I need to like and don't like and who I need to hate and who I need to love and, and, and takes me outside of God's design even for my very own physical body. They want to declare what they think is right. And all it brings is heartache and trouble and more death. Abner's death was senseless. Because he was right there, right there at the gate, and instead of doing what God had done instead of, for him, instead of being steered by God, he allowed, the, he allowed Joab to steer him aside, just for a few personal words. And there he died as a fool, because he was right there in eyeshot of the gates that would be his saving grace, but he just didn't pay attention. And so you see this physical representation 
of this theological principle that God has given us, that if we live in him, let me give you a few verses to back this up. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, it says, and he will become a sanctuary, right? That's a place of refuge, a place of safety. He says, and he will become a sanctuary. He's talking about Jesus. And a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This was foretelling Jesus. Jesus would become a sanctuary for those who would love him, but for those who, who were worried about their own way and, and having the Messiah do things their way, Jesus would become a stumbling block and an offense to those who did not love him. But to those who love him, he becomes a sanctuary. Psalms 28, 2 says, Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Acts chapter 17, verse 28 says, For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Listen, in him we can live, move, and have our being. In him we can be safe. In him we can grasp onto our sanctuary, our safe place, and live according to Christ, and live freely in him and free from worry about the second death that is hell. Amen. Just as Abner could have went inside the gates of that city and lived freely. So we can live in Christ free today. Free from the worry of sin. It doesn't mean that we'll be sinless. But it means that the effects of sin will not affect us for an eternity. Because when we stand before a most holy God, when we stand before Almighty God Himself, He who is righteous, we will be covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And there we will be declared one of His. Amen. And we'll be declared holy and righteous, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. Living in freedom. The last four weeks we've been shown what living in Christ looks like, haven't we? We can live in Him without fear. I've got some examples for you, though. I thought maybe some examples might help you understand this. So what does it mean in, in living in Christ? And how does, that, how does that protect me? How does that allow me to, you know, to live differently? Well, I thought about this. First off, we know that God has designed sex to be between what? A man and a woman in the confines of marriage for a lifetime. That is God's design. Inside that design, we can live freely. It said the bed is undefiled. You know what that means? That means in marriage, my wife and I are, are, are free to please each other however we together choose and live freely in Him without worry. But what happens when we take sex outside of the marriage? Right? Then that's where the worry comes from. I thought of this. What's the likelihood of an unwanted pregnancy resulting in abortion, what's the likelihood of that happening inside the confines of a loving marriage? Now, in today's society, I'm not going to say that married people don't contemplate it as well because we've gotten so selfish at this point, right? We were designed to multiply. Do you know that, right? I mean, think about what he told Adam and Eve, go and, and populate the earth. We were designed to have children, but we live in a day and age now where people don't want it. I don't, I don't need children to tie me down. They want to take the beauty of producing life. They want to take the beauty of that and now enact as if it's a bad thing. 
So I'm not saying in today's world that maybe abortion is not contemplated inside of marriage, but I can guarantee you, and I'm sure I can find some statistics on it, but you know, in your, I don't need to give you numbers. You know in your heart of hearts right now that the likelihood of those who are lined up at the abortion center to get one, the likelihood of them person being in a solid, loving marriage and having been impregnated by their spouse, the likelihood of them be having that and standing in that line is slim to none. Don't you know that? The likelihood of a husband and wife that love each other and that keep sex in the confines of their marriage and their marriage alone, the chances and likelihood of them standing in the line at an abortion mill is slim to none. I'd be willing to bet money on it because you know I'm right. So why do we have so many of them? Because people are having unwanted pregnancies because they're not living in the confines of a beautiful, loving marriage as God has designed it. Maybe they got pregnant from someone else, from somebody else's marriage. Maybe they're not married at all. I, I don't know the details, and I'm not here to judge in that either. By the way, I will tell you this, church, like it or not, your duty in this matter, your responsibility in this matter in protecting life is not just voting pro-life. You just don't go vote pro-life and say, well, I did my part and walk away. Absolutely not. Listen, how do people change their minds from, from having those done? By having a support system, by having someone that will come along and say, you know what, I'll love you. I'll help you take care of it. I'll be there for you. I'll give you a place to stay. I'll be your support structure. Don't you think if more people had that, there'd be a lot less of those going on? How do people do it? Because they don't have any alternative. They don't have loving families. Or they don't have the support system they need. Or they're worried about being shamed because of the, the, the things that are surrounding that pregnancy. We don't need to shame them. There's enough shame in the world already. We are to love them. I'm not going to judge you because you find yourself in a situation that is less than desirable. Listen, that has already happened. It's already done. There's nothing we can do about it. You know what I'll do? We'll love you. And we'll help take care of you in any way we can. That's what the church needs to be doing. Instead, the church day is kind of a hands-off. I voted pro-life. I've done my part. Now let's, let's get on with the party. That's just absolutely wrong. Why do they increase year after year? Because the church has just let it happen. The church has just laid down. Either, either we just vote pro-life and walk away, or we become... The, there are some churches that are out there you know, protesting, and they do it in such a way that there's no way they'll ever draw anybody to help them the way they act. Have you ever seen some of these protests out here where they're shaming the people? That ain't going to get nobody. How do you win people over for Christ? God said love. Love is the way to win people over. Love is the way to help change people's lives. Not being judgmental and telling them how bad they are. They already feel bad enough. They need to know that somebody loves them. And how will they ever believe that Christ loves them unless the people who say they follow Christ love them, already, love them physically while they're here? I can't tell you Christ loves you and then treat you poorly and think that you're going to believe it. The only way you're going to believe that Christ loves you is if we show you love. We show them love. If we, the church, will be the hands and feet of Christ and show them that we care. That's how they're going to know. We can't spew judgment and anger at them. Here's another one. Here's another example. When we live telling the truth, how much anxiety and fear would we never experience since we have nothing to hide? 
Anybody ever made a mistake and tried to cover it up? At work? Try to act like it didn't happen? If I could make it like it didn't happen, then it didn't happen. Anybody else ever done that? Try to fix it? Try to hide it? Worried death, somebody going to find out even after you done fixed it and it seems like the smoke cleared? Every time your boss calls, you're like, oh, they they found out. Right? Every time they say your name, huff, oh, he knows. I remember my mother, my mother, when I felt guilty, if I did something I was trying to hide from my mother, all she had to do was say my name. Huff. It ain't even my real name. My mother never called me by my God-given name that she gave me at birth. I think she didn't like my dad. She named me after my dad and just didn't want to say his name more than she had to. So she called me something different. I just, we'll call him Huff. He looks puffy anyway, so we'll just call him Huff. I'm just kidding, by the way. I'm not kidding about the part my mother never called me Thomas ever that I can ever remember. Only time my mother ever used my name was at the doctor's office. She'd give my real name. So all my mom had to do was say, Huff, that's it, she knows. That, that's it, she knows. Right? And then I go to her, I'm like, yes, mom. I'm ready to just plead my heart out at this point. Yes, mom, I'm getting ready to just give up the whole dirt, you know, tell her the whole thing. Yes, mom, and I'm ready to, I need you to walk down to your paps for me and get something like Okay, mom. Wait a second. You said that my mom knew if I said okay too quickly, I was still hiding some. I could never hide anything from her. I remember one time I told you all a story. I was playing underneath the house with matches. Right? Fortunately, every kid here needed to hear that. I shouldn't have said that. But anyway. Well, Pastor Huff played with them. I played with them. I don't even know if they have matches anymore, but I burnt my finger playing with a match. And boy, I, I burn it good. I was like, oh man, it would hurt so bad. And about the time I heard my mom holler, huff. I come out of that crawl space and brush myself off so she wouldn't know I was under there. Where, yes, mom. And I'm holding my hand kind of behind my back. She said, I need you to do something for me. Okay, mom, whatever you need. What'd you do? I mean, she just. But that anxiety where your heart was beating just knowing that you was caught. And, right? and then they, they finally call your name and you find out what they want and it wasn't nothing to do with that. But yet every time they say your name, your heart starts beating again. Think about how much anxiety and fear we would never experience if we lived in truth. If we just did what was right and told the truth. Mess up, say, you know what I find out now? If you mess up, it's just easier to say you messed up. Because I, I can't remember enough to hide stuff anymore. You know, y'all, anybody ever hide something from themselves? Or forget what story you told? I just find it's easier just to fess up. I did it. I fess up even if I didn't do it, if I thought I did it, because I can't remember whether I did it or not. Somebody got to take a fall. I might as well take the fall. I'm the leader of the group anyway. So leader, my, if I didn't do it, one of my guys did. So I might as well just go ahead and take the fall. I've done that. I thought I was the one that did it. And my, later on, my guy's like, you know, I was the one that did that, didn't you? I can't believe you took that from me. You know, then I said, well, you know, I love the guys on my team. I walked away like I couldn't remember. I thought I did it. Right? I find it's just easier to live in truth than it is to try to live and hide stuff because all it brings is anxiety and fear. Can you see how living in Christ can make your life easy? When I live in Him, I don't have to worry about tomorrow because I know that He supplies tomorrow. 
So in the last four weeks, I, w- I walked down through 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Jude. And I'm going to preach back all through all those books right now. So y'all just, I hope you brought some snacks. You should see your face. Because half of y'all don't know if I'm telling the truth. Because I ain't, it's been four months. I mean, it's been a whole month. Since I, no, I, I just jotted down some things. And listen, if you have the My Custom Church app, I actually give you the verses that I'm referencing here. I'm just going to read through a few things that I learned over the last four weeks that shows me that living in Christ is a place of safety for me. We learn first off in 1 John, he said to walk in the light and to openly confess our sins, and he is faithful to forgive us. I learned that in 1 John. I learned to love Christ and keep his commandments. If we say we love him and don't keep his commandments, we are liars and the truth is not in us. That's a, that's a good way for me to take a check up from the heart up. You know what I'm saying? Because, listen, if I truly love God, I want to keep his commandments. And that if, that, listen, if I don't keep his commandments, then I'm truly not loving him. And so that's a good way for us to take a heart check up. I learned to love my brother. Matter of fact, in 1 John, he said that this is a new commandment, which was also old. Right? To love your brother. Love your neighbor as yourself. I learned to to not love the world and beware of false teaching. So how does that help me live safely in Christ? Listen, when I live that scripture that I I truly, right, that, that, uh, that I truly love the Lord and I don't, you know, set my sights on what the world says and I'm careful of listening to teaching, there's a whole lot of teaching out there. Go to YouTube. You can find teaching on anything you want and you'll find something that's going to tickle your fancy. You'll find somebody out there to tell you if you wear a purple tutu on the second Tuesday of each week, you're going to go to heaven. I'm sure there's somebody out there that will say that. Whatever it is you can think of, you'll find somebody that's going to say it for you. But it doesn't make it true. I'm told to beware of the world and beware of false teaching. And so what do I do? I need to take anything that I take in teaching-wise, I need to look at the Scriptures and compare it to the truth in the Word of God. And if it doesn't shake out the test against the Word of God, I need to pitch that teaching and get rid of it. That'll keep me safe. I learned to not be deceived by those who, who you know, uh, those who, who say they are righteous but yet don't practice righteousness. And instead they go on practice sinning. John said that they are of the devil. I learned we need to love one another. I learned... And 1 John, to test the spirits and don't just believe anyone. Weigh their teaching against the word of God. I learned that God is love and we will do likewise if we are truly his. We cannot hate our brother and say that we are walking in the light. Amen. That's what we learned. I learned that everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world just as Jesus has overcome the world. He says, as I overcome, so you also overcome the world. I learned to walk in truth in 2 John, to walk in truth and love and weigh the words of others against this truth. I learned in 3 John to support those who are working according to Christ and oppose those who are not walking in Christ and are selfish and ignore the authority of both God's word as well as his anointed leaders. That's what I learned in 3 John. Brother Dave brought that message. Right? Support those who are working according to Christ and oppose those. Some people say, well, who am I to say, listen, I can't go up and pronounce judgment on somebody, but if I, listen, if I hear you speaking something that ain't truth against the Scripture of God, it's my job to oppose that. Maybe you didn't know. I have found myself sometimes reading something on social media and be like, hmm, got that wrong. 
What do I do now? I've seen it. The Bible's holding me accountable to these things. I need to oppose those kind of teachings. So what I've learned is if, if it's someone who's in my area of influence, in other words, if someone that I know personally, then I've got to talk to them. The Word compels me to do this. When I live safely in the confines of Christ's command, it will protect me and my family. It will give me confidence toward God that I am His, that He is mine, and that I can live my life freely. Are there things that God prohibits me to do? Absolutely. But why do people get hung up on that? Well, if you're a Christian, then you can't do this or you can't do that. Okay. I'm also an American, and I'm not allowed to kill people, and if I do, then I'm going to go to jail. Right? I'm not allowed to speed excessively. Oh, gee, I just thought that was a good one. <laughs> well, Chris told a story about getting a ticket not too long ago, or, or getting pulled over at least. And I may or may have not been in a vehicle once when he was pulled over. I don't know what we were doing in 81, but it was above, I can tell you what, the speed limit was above the number designation of the road we were on. I can tell you that. If that helps you out any at all. Um, good thing we wasn't on 110. <laughs> Glad we were just on 81. If we had been on 195, it would have been a problem, pal. That's all I got to say. Listen, we're taught to walk in the truth. We're taught in Jude to contend for the faith and openly reject blasphemous teaching and his teachers. And in the end of Jude, it says for us, and, and, and if you remember, Kevin really stressed this part. It's, it says to build yourselves up. He said it, it didn't just say build yourself. Remember Kevin stressing that? He says build yourselves. You know what that means? I not only need to be concerned with my own building up of my faith, I need to be concerned about yours too. Not just because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a, a brother in Christ. I need to be concerned so that means that I need to not only live right because I know God is watching, I need to live right because you're watching too. And we need to help one another and be there for each other. Build yourselves up in the faith and the love of Christ. And it told us that we need to persevere and show mercy on those who struggle with doubt. Listen, for those who have doubt, a lot of times I can't believe you don't get it. Instead, I should say, you know what? I know what it's like to struggle with doubt. I may not struggle with certain areas of doubt now in my life, but it doesn't mean I haven't before. And just because you struggle in an area of your walk with Christ, right, doesn't mean that you aren't a strong Christian. It doesn't mean you, that you won't go out here and take a stand for the right things. It just means, means that there's an area where, you know what, that you've experienced more pain than I have in that area. And so it's a struggle for you in, a, in those moments. It says, I'm not to be upset with people who struggle. Instead, I'm supposed to show them mercy. So mercy for those who struggle in their faith. Not beat them up for it. So listen, if we practice these principles, we'll remain inside the gate. Do you get the idea? When I look at God's word and I do what it says, then I know that I'm living in that safe place that God has carved out for me and that I have freedom to live. Listen, Abner didn't have to go in that city and just stand in a square to be safe, did he? He could have went in that city and just lived, moved, and had his being. And he, and he would have been open for anything that was going on in that city. He could have take a part of it. He just had to stay inside the gate. 
God's not telling you that for you to be safe, you got to go home, stand in a square and paint all your windows black and just do this, this and be like some little church person, you know, have wear a bow tie all the time and all this crazy stuff. Listen, God has given us the freedom to live. God's given us the freedom to even enjoy life. I think about some of the times that we went out and played music together in these other places, and we get to take Christ in places that he normally ain't taken in. And some people don't like that. But listen, I believe that God's given us the freedom to do that. I still need to act like a Christian no matter where I'm at. I still need to be Christ-like. But I have the freedom as long as I live in a way that is pleasing to Christ. I have the freedom to go enjoy those things. Play music with friends and do stuff like that. I got the freedom to do these things. Abner was free. As long as he stayed inside of those gates, he was free to, to go in there and just live. And didn't have to look over his shoulder and over his back. He didn't have to do that. He could be free in that place that God had specifically carved out and said, inside here, I got your back. I'll take care of you. But if you go outside that city, then realize you're opening yourself up to a whole lot of hurt. You're opening yourself up to possible death outside of these gates. And so I want you to listen and get this very clear. This physical representation gives us this understanding of this principle that I cannot go live outside of the principles of Christ and expect his protection to be upon me and expect for a not to have an effect against me. You with me? I can't go outside of Christ and then expect him to bless me too. I can't go live my way and outside of what God says is right. I can't go out and do that which is wrong. I mean, uh, the example I use of sex being designed to be between a man and a woman in marriage for life. You know, doesn't mean that there hasn't been people that messed up. But you know what that means? Live it now in the marriage that you're in. God forgives. But from this day forward, right? From here on out, we live the way according and sex in this design that God has given us. And there we'll be safe. But if I take it outside of that, then I'm opening myself up for a lot of heartache. I'm opening myself up for a lot of hurt. I'm opening myself up for maybe some really life-altering things that may happen to me. But when I go outside of God's design for it, and then I get bit by it, I can't look back in Christ and say, why did you let this happen? Why didn't you protect me? Or if we take scripture out of context and we use that, such as Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Make sure you read a couple verses before that, by the way. Paul said, I've learned to be content in all these things, to be abased and be abound. In other words, he's been rich and he's been poor. He's been through tough times. And at one point he wrote to the Corinthian churches one time that, that they, they felt like they were just marked for death. And they were just ready to give up. They were just exhausted and they were, they were just void of all hope. But yet God brought them through. And so when we look at those verses, a lot of times people will take that verse, Philippians 4.13, and they'll use it outside its context. They'll go do something that they want to do and they'll claim that verse. But here's the deal. If you go against God's will and you claim that verse, you can claim that verse all you want. It ain't going to happen. Just because you spoke it don't mean nothing. We can't speak anything into existence. God does that. I don't speak things into existence. God does. 
Nowhere in his word does it tell me that I can. And so when I go against God, you know, there was one time I was going to start my own company. I was going to go in business for myself. This is what I want. I want to go in business. Matter of fact, I worked for a guy for years knowing that he knew that I want to go in business myself to the point that he made it possible that I could buy his business from him. I had to take on a few partners. But he gave me that opportunity. That's what I wanted. But in that process of working several years hard to be able to get that opportunity and finally get it, you know what? You know what I didn't take into account? God's will. Because you know what God told me? Well, if you can want it all day long. But it ain't my will. Either you ain't going to get it, or even worse, I'll let you get it. And then you'll have to contend with it in a harder fashion. You see, I could have said, I can do all things through Christ who strengths me. I can say that all day long. But if I say, and I'm doing something out of his will, it's not going to get me anywhere. Abner could have walked outside the gates of Hebron and says, I'm inside of Hebron, I'm inside of Hebron. But if he stood outside the gate, he could see he was in Hebron all day long. But if he was outside the gate, he was open to death. And that's exactly what happened to him. Just being around Hebron wasn't enough. He needed to be inside the gate. Are you with me? You can't stand outside the gate and say, I'm in Hebron, I'm in Hebron. Uh, I, you know, I'd be one of those smart elders draw a line. Hebron, no Hebron, Hebron, no. Right? I want to say, oh, can't touch me. Oops, psych. Right? How many of y'all would have been, y'all know, y'all, don't we do that spiritually sometimes? You're like, oh, it's not that bad over there. It's not that bad. Pretty, pretty solid. I'll just, I'll just leave this one foot, like, touching. I'm just going to put my weight on this leg. Right? Oh, that's not too bad. I'm still in Hebron. Still got my toe in there. Hebron. No Hebron, Hebron. Oh. That one's going to hurt, by the way. <laughs> Sometimes don't we spiritually dance back and forth on the line? You see, we take his word out of context. We can't claim it and be outside of God's will and think that it's going to happen. But God has created this nice, safe place for us. And he said, you live inside this word. Right? And I believe that John and Jude wrote those four beautiful letters and gave us such a beautiful picture of how to live in Christ. Gave us a simple plan with several facets, but of how to live and persevere in Christ. And if I just, if I, if all I did was follow those four books, I'd actually be in pretty good shape. But do you get it today? I gotta live in Christ. There it's safe. Would you stand?